Welcome to episode 12 of Coquette, or the artist formerly known as Historical Whores, if you've been listening. Same podcast, same hosts. Just a different name. Check out the little mini intro that we made if you haven't already, if you want to hear more about why we decided to rename our podcast. This is still the podcast where we tell you about women and other disenfranchised peoples throughout history who are remembered for their deviance from the norm. The point is to talk about them as people. We are not here to lecture you. We're just here to tell their stories. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tanaya. And this week we will be talking about artistes. Tanaya will be telling you about Artemisia Gentileschi, one of the greatest painters of the Italian Renaissance. And Kristen is going to be telling you the story of Julie d'Aubigny, the opera mademoiselle with a penchant for sword fighting. taken such a long break mostly sorry to my cousin who has been bothering me to make new episodes really we're both just a bit burnt out caught up in other things finding a new normal and just had a lot of time on our hands i'm so sorry you said sorry i I was like why is she laughing it's definitely because i said sorry 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 eh? um fight me (laughs) all right oh beautiful um Oh, beautiful. Okay. How was your lockdown? Real quick, we'll do like a 30 second breakdown. My lockdown in the United Kingdom was in England. I think that's it. That's all I have to say to you. Yuck. But you've been you've been furloughed, right? So you're not back in the office. No, I am still at home. I've got nothing but time, which I've learned is a very poor way for me to be creative and really like I just I feel like the more time I have, the less I do. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. I honestly, like, I can't, I cannot remember like April or May. Like, I don't, I don't know what happened during those months. We just hope that everyone out there is healthy and happy and also can get a haircut soon because we're both in desperate need. I hope everyone's getting paid. I hope everyone can pay their rent and their bills on time. I hope no one's getting evicted. Okay, I'm like, I hope you can get a haircut. And you're like, I hope you're financially stable. I care so much. I'm here for you, my people. I think lockdown's been very good for some people with, you know, their creative endeavors. And I think that uh, there's been, I love when people were like, oh, Shakespeare, like, you know, during a, it was like Shakespeare and Da Vinci, both during quarantines. Go fuck yourself. Had, you know, like made these works. And I'm like, hey, well, not all Taylor Swift. Okay. And some of us produce better things. No offense, Tay Tay. Ooh. It's crap. And also, she didn't invent indie music. Right? Yeah. Like people are acting like cardigans, like the fucking new coming of music. And you're like, it's bad acoustic. There are some jams. I'm not going to lie. Mad Woman is like, it's a jam and a half. And Jason is constantly listening to Invisible String. I think that's the one. You know, I actually, I'm pretty, I'm pretty stoked though, because Tim was like, it wasn't that good. And I was like, oh. Yeah, like deep love formed in that moment. You were like, I love you just a little bit more. (laughs) Just a little bit more. I would, I would like to say Boney Bear's track was the worst thing that he's ever done. Yeah. I was ashamed. Justin, if, if you ever listen, shame. But 
There are some artists that just create great things in life, and I think you're going to tell me first about one of them. Excellent segue, Kristen. Excellent. I'm here for. Right. Today, y'all, I am talking about Artemisia Genileski. Credits go to Catherine Fletcher on the History Extra podcast, good old Wikipedia, and a little bit from a Jonathan Jones article on The Guardian, but I don't recommend it because he's writing with such a dude perspective that he's like, wow, like, can you believe that like there was a, a lady painter? I don't know more about her. Oh my god, I'm so shocked that women too could pick up a paintbrush. How do their delicate hands handle it? Yeah. All right. We're going to start with a story from the book of Daniel. So a young woman named Susanna is bathing in her, in her own garden, in her own private garden. She's sent her attendants away because she's alone at her own house. Yet little does she know that two Hebrew elders are secretly watching her and probably touching themselves. Pervs. Pervy. So as she makes her way back to the house, uh, they jump out from, I don't know, from behind some bushes? I don't know. And they accost her. And they threaten her. And they tell her that uh, they're going to tell her husband that she was meeting a young man in the garden unless she agrees to have sex with them. She refuses. uh, And the rest of the story is for another time because it's just another white savior white male savior story um the subject of susanna and the elders became a really popular subject for painters during the italian renaissance and italian renaissance is like 15th 16th 17th century italy um you know da vinci you know michelangelo you know titian so uh all the ninja turtles yeah 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 you know you know you know these people you know them you love them you go to the Louvre and walk past them. You take selfies with them. Anyway, just me? Okay. Uh, Loren- so uh, Suzanne and the Elders, you have Lorenzo Lotto, Guido Reni, Rubens, Van Dyck, Tintoretto, Rembrandt, Tiepolo. They all painted on Suzanne and the Elders. Uh, in the Baroque period, painters emphasized the drama. Some chose to focus on Suzanne's nudity and her sexuality. And in many paintings honestly Susanna's form has kind of like is kind of boyish like it's flat breast flat stomach or she looks a little bit more masculine so it's weird uh and then along comes this little 17 year old girl named Artemisia Gentileschi who paints a fully formed woman she has heavy breasts and a rounded stomach but Susanna is twisting and she looks awkward and uncomfortable her face is just a, a mask of shame and pain and, and and uncomfortableness and fear. Her body is twisted and the elders pour over her from atop a wall, leaning down over her, leering at her. And there's this feeling of pressure in the painting. And we understand the female's perspective. And at no point do we sympathize with the elders or wish to leer at Susanna with them. Mm. I'm looking at it right now, and the first feeling I got is the two of them together are a unit as well. Yeah. The two of them together represent this, like, you know, their intentions are the same. Yeah, exactly. So she's 17 years old, and this is suddenly one of the most famous paintings in the Italian Renaissance. So who was 
Artemisia Gentileschi. She was born in Rome in 1593. Her father, Orazio Gentileschi, was uh, an artist as well, and he was quite well known. Uh, and so Artemisia grew up around the Roman art scene. She trained at his house. She showed more promise than her brothers. Mm -hmm. And Catherine Fletcher says, you know, at one point, we would have said that Artemisia became the most important female artist of the Italian Renaissance and probably Europe. Mm -hmm. But then she says, uh, no, now we say she is one of the most important artists of 17th century Europe. Full stop, artist, not female. Because she played with like the light use that Caravaggio did, but her characters have very strong female forms as opposed to more masculine, like you see with uh, Da Vinci and Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, and we get different perspectives. So it's really interesting. Yeah, she, she, she is a recognizable artist, not because or in spite of her being a woman, but because she was an artist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and so the culture at the time, this is the classic Renaissance period with standards set by famous Italian artists. Again, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael, Titian, Caravaggio. And it's a very male world. Mm -hmm. um, there were female artists at the time. You have Propezia de Rossi, you have Sister Platianelli, uh, Lucrezio Pistelli, and Sofonisba Anguissola. Again, I'm so sorry. I'm not Italian. I can't do this. You're doing great, babe. You're doing great. Thanks. So anyway, they, like women are painting, but a lot of these women are born in, into painting families. So if you're not, if your father's not an artist, you're not likely to become an artist yourself kind of thing. Yeah. And that's very true with a lot of women, right? Like if your father is a man who values education, who's an educator, you will more likely receive an education. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of... Daddy brings in a tutor. Tell me about the tutor. I like. I have like a foreboding sense of, ugh, is this going to be bad? It's going to be really bad. Is this, oh no. It's like Abaddon and Italy's all over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit worse. So um, this, I'm not going to name his name. He doesn't deserve to be remembered. He uses, uh, he brings in this tutor to teach Artemisia uh, the technical trompe ploy technique so she can learn to paint on ceilings and be an aide to her father when he's on commissions. So this absolute dickbag takes advantage of her and uh, rapes her. And she fights back. But he's taken her honor and this is 17th century Italy. So he persuades her that he'll marry her so that she can preserve her honor because that's how things worked back then. Mm -hmm. And so she continues to go along with ongoing sexual exploitation, i.e. she continues to be raped until it's found out that he's already married. Wow. At which point, Daddy Janileski takes this dude to court after the tutor reneges on his promise. And he doesn't take this man to court because his daughter is traumatized or, or anything like fatherly love, but because Artemisia has now lost her value on the marriage market as a virgin. Mm. 
I see. Yeah. Do you think, do you think he, I mean, I mean, not to assume what the father's intentions were, um, but do you think as he did that because that was the only course of legal action he could take? Uh, no, because I'm about to tell you the atrocities that uh, Artemisia went through to prove her innocence. Okay. All right. Go. So um, Artemisia actually, when she's in court, they uh, employ thumbscrews on her to verify her innocence. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Thumbscrews, by the way, is where they like put your thumb... They trap your thumb and then they literally screw down and like it breaks your nails and oh, I can't, I can't go on. But like in court, she maintained, she says, I scratched his face and pulled his hair. And before he penetrated me again, I grasped his penis so tight that I even removed a piece of flesh. She couldn't stop him though. She rushed to a drawer and she got out a knife. And she told him, I'd like to kill you with this knife because you have dishonored me. He opened his coat and he said, here I am. And Gentileschi threw the knife, but he knocked it aside. And Artemisia said to the court, otherwise I might have killed him. Wow. How old is she? I think 19. And she produced the, the painting you spoke of in the beginning. Yeah, but, you know. Around that period. I just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Art well, as a reflection of, of pain and process. But this is one of the things, though, is that this is why we get, you know, everyone assumes that Susanna and the Elders was painted as a product of this rape. But it was created beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I think as a woman growing up in the 20th and 21st century, I relate to that painting. I didn't, I don't need to have been raped to understand that painting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the fear, the knowledge of how it's going to be twisted, the commentary that will follow. And And she she, she would have too experienced that. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and that's the problem with like the Jonathan Jones article is he talks about how like Artemisia is this great revenge artist but it's like when men when men paint something dark and bloody they're not they're not that they're not reflected as being revenge artists they're just great male artists yeah they're reflecting the realities of society why can't you just recognize that she too is doing so yeah so she's 17 she produces this work about a woman feeling uncomfortable under the gaze of men and then afterwards she's raped and it so Suzanne and the elders is not a it's not a byproduct of rape it's a byproduct of being a woman in the in the 17th century fascinating yeah so um her father actually wins the suit uh not artemisia artemisia gets no say um and your one is sentenced to exile from rome but predictably the sentence was never carried out eight you're keep knocking your mic oh shit sorry it's okay um so the the tutor was sentenced to exile from Rome. But predictably the sentence was never carried out um because the tutor actually had the uh, protection of the pope at the time. Oh the pope they've done oh. such good uh yeah pope innocent the 10th actually said that this 
I'm not going to name him, uh, your one is the only one of these artists who never disappointed me because he never pretended to have honor. It's an important lesson that when you are well connected enough, you can get away with just about anything. Exactly. I was thinking of Jeffrey Epstein, but he's dead. That documentary made me so angry. So I think angry. about I think about it so often and highly recommend that anyone who can watch it on Netflix do so. No, it's pretty traumatizing. Like it is. It is. It's definitely one of those things you need to like stop and and check yourself because of like the way you know, Jason, I've had this conversation about Handmaid's Tale before, how, like, I find some episodes of Handmaid's Tale incredibly difficult to watch, and I just don't want to watch. I got through two episodes of season two, and the panic attacks I was having, I just, like, was like, nope, too close to real life. Especially with, like, fucking special police going around. Anyway, this is not that podcast. Um, Artemisia gets married quickly after the trial. Uh, and they do seem to form initially a successful business partnership, and she is allowed <laughs> allowed to continue painting. Uh, they moved to Florence because of her soiled reputation in Rome. Um, they have five children, but unfortunately only one survives to adulthood. Oh, that's difficult. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, there's no, there's not a lot actually on her children. So only, only two survive past the age of five, and then only one survives into adulthood. So I actually couldn't say how it affects her work, but uh, Artemisia starts having an affair with one of her wealthy patrons. Her husband's aware of it. But as the couple uh, sinks into debt, the marriage deteriorates. They move back to Rome in 1620. Uh, and by 1623, there's no more mention of her husband in any surviving documentation. But when she's back in Rome, her career takes off and the money problems cease. Interesting. So, yeah. So at this point, she starts to move around and travel. She forms an acquaintance with Galileo, uh, and she takes on influential patrons, including uh, the, the Medici's at the court of Florence, the Dukes of Mantua, and even our friend Charles I of England. Charlie uh, Boy. I know. So in 1615, she's commissioned by Michelangelo's great nephew to contribute a painting for the construction of the Casa Buonarotti, don't at me, as a celebration of Michelangelo, um, and Artemisia is assigned the allegory of inclination, and she paints this absolutely beautiful painting of uh, uh, a young woman nude holding a compass, representing inborn creative ability, and they think that the idea of her holding a compass actually has to do with her acquaintance with Galileo. Fascinating. Yeah. And so Artemisia was actually paid three times more than any other artist participating in the series. But uh, Michelangelo's great nephew got super uncomfortable with the nude woman, God forbid. Um, and uh, she was covered uh, uh, 
in in a, in a clothes it, by an artist named L. Volterano in 1684. So she spent three years in Venice from 1627 to 1630. Then she moved to Naples in 1630, which was a city rich in workshops and art lovers. Um, and they think that she might've been driven out of Venice by the plague. When we've been, we've been to Venice during the plague years in the 17th century. It's not a pretty place, people. No, but uh, Veronica Franco. Yes. Yeah. Friend of the pod. So uh, in 1638, she joined her father in London at the court of Charles I. Uh, and he was her patron for a while, but then she left England in 1642 as the English Civil War kicked off. I was about to be like, how long was she there? Because shit's about to hit the fan soon. Yeah, she, she got out. Charles, uh, and Charles did not. Charles did not get out, but Charles II did. Yes, he did. Yeah, he had a great time. We will visit that soon, hopefully, on the podcast. Yeah, be good times. Um, well, we've also we've already visited. Uh, I was gonna say we've already visited Charles II, another friend of the pod. Another friend of the pod. We got a lot of friends on them. They all move in the same circles. <laughs> it's, it's just because this period is. I think particularly interesting because it's one immediately after what we've tended to study. So for us, maybe we're drawn to it as well. I think it's also like the 17th century is truly the beginning of globalization. Oh yeah. Print, print is fast. It's cheaper. It, you know, that you're, if you look at any kind of print collection in a rare book library, the 17th century dominates over the 16th. Yeah, and you have uh, established colonies already, so like explorations over to a large extent, and people are are settling mm-hmm. all around the world. Well, and by pe- I mean asshole Europeans are taking colonies. Anyway, not this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. We can't fix it. Sorry. Later in life. Oh, in Naples, uh, she moved back to Naples in 1649, and I we think she just stayed there. Uh, later in life, she ended up having her own workshop, as many artists did at that time. What just happened? Yeah, so they're they're so good; they've gained reputation. People want to study under them, so they set up a little workshop. Hence, the confusion on the art market. Exactly. But they're like, is this a Da Vinci or is it Da Vinci Studio? Because she'd just sign everything, you know. Even or they'd if, have a hand in particular aspects of a painting, but not the whole painting. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, but it was typical of successful star male artists at the time. Um, but it made Artemisia quite a bit of money, and she was concerned not because she had to dower her only surviving daughter, who, by the way, was also an artist, but none of her work survives. Sad. That's really sad. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so she was assertive about the value of her own work. And there is one instance where a patron asked her to send drawings. Uh, she sent drawings to the patron, like, saying, like, well, this is what I have as an idea to paint your house or whatever. 
and the patron then gave them to another artist and she was so furious and she refuses to send drawings after that and she said she apparently she said you wouldn't treat a man this way so she was conscious of her own second class position but also consciously standing up for it and making a point of it mm-hmm. she wanted to challenge it yeah so um we have talked about this her paintings a lot of them are women taking revenge on men you have judith and hollow furnace you have yael and sarah hammering a nail into the head of a man and these are strong heroic women fighting for their people fighting for their reputation again Susanna and the elders which was but that's the thing though is like all of these paintings were popular subjects at the time it's just the way that she chose to uh, just the way that she chose to portray them mm-hmm. right so there's like I think Judith and Hollow Furnace is one of the most famous paintings that I'm aware of where uh, Hollow Furnace is naked on the bed right he's lying off of it and then she's shoving the sword yeah. into his yeah. neck yeah and his blood is spurting I mean I look at that painting and I'm like badass I'm like what th- what did he do which it's obviously going to carry like my I put like my feminist like empowerment into that but it's yeah. not necessarily what she was intending yeah and I think it's interesting that like she's painting them through a female perspective and then suddenly everyone's like oh this is a woman bent on revenge and it's like or this is just woman this is just a woman saying like well this is how women would actually be doing it mm, yeah she's already like you said she's taking these popular stories and she's just giving them another perspective and it's not necessarily that she's trying to push a a feminist revenge agenda yeah I mean and, and you'll you'll appreciate this as an archivist but you know the focus on the rape trial actually comes from an imbalance of documents in her life we have some letters that have to do with her lover. We have some letters that have to do with negotiations with her patrons. But the majority of the documents that we have about Artemisia's life actually come from her rape trial, hence the focus on it. Yeah, people people do tend to do that, don't they? They go into an archive or they go into a museum. And because of a certain number of objects, we think we can com- completely understand. We offer some contextualization. And then we think, oh, well, we must know how they experienced things. If she underwent a rape, that must define her. And this is the thing you and I have talked about a lot that people do in film and television where they kind of, they use rape almost as an exploitative tool for like character development. And people are so much more than these events in their life. It's not to diminish them or say they're unimportant or didn't affect, but they are, you know, people are more than just a couple of traumatic events in their life. Yeah. I mean, like, I know many, many women who have been raped, and I don't think about them, and immediately rape springs to mind. They're they're complicated humans, like. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm looking at some of her paintings as we're mm-hmm. talking, because I just thought, well, I want to see, you know, after you told me a bit, I want to see what she does. And looking in particular at that painting of Judith killing it's two, there are two women. Yeah. And, you know, there's sort of like an intense look of, is it, is it happening? It doesn't look like an angry look. 
it doesn't look particularly vicious to me. It doesn't look like they're enjoying this killing. It looks like they're doing it because it has to be done. Yeah, I mean, and these stories are women who are meant to be... Um, sorry, my notes are freezing. Yeah, these women are, are strong, heroic women fighting for their people and fighting for their reputation. That's why they honestly had been subjects of paintings prior to Artemisia. Mm. And it was are, interesting. It's interesting you say fighting for the people, fighting for what they believe in, because she's fighting for her own art and her right to, to do it. Exactly. I mean, and, you know, it has maybe it has much less to do with rape. It has more to do with her, you know, killing male artists who would put her down, you know, and, and, and symbolically and not physically. Like she's not, she doesn't, she doesn't strike me as, as a revenge artist. She strikes me as a, as a very defensive artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, you know, look, looking at it and it's really interesting if you just Google her name, there's so many titles that come up with, you know, the rape survivor and her revenge. Yep. And it's, I, I do agree with you. Like the, the painting of Judith and her maidservant where they have the basket with the head after, you know, he's been killed. Yep. It's more about how are they going to go about doing it? It's, it's not, there's nothing about these paintings that to me seems intensely aggressively seeking to take down the patriarchy. No. I mean, and there are plenty, there are plenty of uh, paintings too where it's just women, you know? We're only focusing on her angry, her her angrier, quote unquote, portraits when we're talking about how she's determined for revenge. You know, what about what about her self-portrait of her painting? Is that a revenge portrait? I mean, what about Venus and Cupid? You know, where Venus is sleeping. Is that a revenge portrait? No. So I just feel that like men have taken these portraits and I'm like, whoa. I didn't know this little lady could pick up a paint brush and paint so well. And oh, oh my, my Atlanta, is she cutting off a head? Oh my gosh, she must hate men. Like women are often just defined, like they have to be defined by something strong in order to be like worth remembering. Like she has to be this like revenge bringer. She has to be extremely passionate. She has to be like, you know, a, a whore who sleeps with multiple people and that's how they want to remember her. Or she has to be like meek and subservient. And, you know, like we, we just always like seek to define these people by like a couple terms so they can fit into a, a headline. Yeah. Well, and so that's the thing, right? Is that feminist, uh, feminist literature does tend to revolve around the event of Artemisia's rape and largely portrays her as traumatized, um, but she's a noble survivor whose work uh, then later becomes characterized by sex and violence as a result of her experience. And then there's a there's a movie by Agnes Merlet who excuses the rape by, by, by having Artemisia say that she wanted it. And so there's a, f- a feminist uh, literary person, scholar, holy shit, named Pollock, uh, who um, says that Agnes Merle's film is a typical example of the inability of popular culture to look at the painter's remarkable career over many decades and in many major centers of art, rather than just like through one episode. So a literature review by Laura Benedetti 
called Reconstructing Artemisia, 20th Century Images of a Woman Artist, concluded that Artemisia's work is often interpreted according to the contemporary issues and personal biases of the authors, duh. And uh, feminist scholars have elevated Artemisia to the status of a feminist icon, you know, which she is. But there's, it's dangerous to just only isolate someone and to label them the way that you want. There's power in it and there's also care that needs to be taken. Yeah. So uh, Elena Chiletti writes, the stakes are very high in Artemisia's case, especially for feminists, because we have invested in her so much for our own quest for women historically and currently intellectually and politically. So which is to say like, it's that it's that like fear it's that fear that men have about feminism right that like we're not feminists because we believe in equal rights we're feminists because we think men are are lesser than women right that's the men's fear and mm-hmm. so that's the thing is like i feel like we've taken artemisia and her work and been like oh look she's cutting off the men men's heads and so you know she must hate men and oh feminist icon and it's like okay no she's just a really fucking good artist do you think do you think it also comes from like when people in the Renaissance are looking at this portrait of of Judith, you know, beheading what's his face? They know that story. Or if yeah. they if they look, you know, at Susanna, like they know it's a story from Daniel. Like they know these stories, they're more familiar with them. So you don't need a little like placard beside the painting explaining it. And it's this like discussion in museums of like how much information should you be giving about a painting for visitors for them to actually comprehend it? Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good museum question, isn't it? And, and how much are people are going to, to read, right? Yeah, how much are they willing to read? Because that's the thing, like, I think, I think it would be interesting to put, you know, instead of by artist or something, or by even chronology, which a lot of galleries are ordered by, Mm -hmm. you know, what happens if you took a bunch of Susanna and the Elders paintings and threw them all up next to each other? Yeah, compare and contrast. Yeah, I mean, because even uh, even Picasso did a Suzanne and the Elders painting. It's like almost like a rite of passage for for artists. But the thing about Artemisia's Suzanne and the Elders that made it so radically different and so well remembered is because it's from a female perspective. Mm-hmm. All these men are painting Susanna as like some like wanton whore who wants it, you know? Yeah, or, like, it's, it's a lesson in the importance of perspectives and like the importance of their variety. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, so Catherine Fletcher said in the podcast that Artemisa said this, and I can't find it anywhere else. So I'm just I'm going to blame Catherine Fletcher if this is not a direct quote. But um, Artemisia is supposed to have said, if I were a man, I can't imagine it would have turned out this way. Interesting. So like, she recognizes that because she's a woman, she also sort of was empowered and privileged by that. See, actually, that's not what I got from it, but, like, that's also interesting, because I just, like, I just feel her, I just feel that Artemisia is, like, a bit saying, like, this is insane, the kind of injustices that I've had to put up with. Yeah, my first thought was that, and then my second was what I said, which is, like, she recognizes that, in part because she's a woman, people are going to be somewhat, like, fascinated by the fact that she's creating. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it it can trivialize it. It doesn't necessarily bring positive attention but it brings attention to it doesn't it but then there are other women who weren't as recognized or as well remembered as she is yeah no very true very true as well like her daughter for instance 
So I don't know. It's a, it's a bit like it's a bit like Roland Bart, like uh, the the death of the author. You know, this idea that like when you write something and you put it out into the the world, that the author's intention no longer matters. And why don't we have that kind of critique for the art world? Why are we so fascinated with the artists who who do all the painting? You know, why can't Judith and Holofernes, why can't Susanna and the Elders, why can't her own self-portrait stand up against themselves? Or, you know, why why do we constantly have to go back to the rape trial? Why do we have to constantly go back to her failed marriage? Why do we mm. constantly have to go back to, I don't know, that's that's it really. Well, it's, it's, it makes me think about how, you know, a lot of people have been like, oh, J.K. Rowling's comments of late. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been sort of a, a pe- people going, well, she produced a work that came to mean different things to a generation, to, an ind- to individuals. And you have to accept that you have to accept that creators and artists are not always good people. Like, Picasso is a horrible person. <laughs> well, I mean, like, what about this whole, like, Woody Allen thing, right? Yeah. Cancer Do we stop watching Woody Allen films because he's a fucking incestual pedophile? Or do we? But once, but once you understand these things about people, it, it, it does change the art, right? Like, it changes how you perceive the things they've created. And I think you're right. Like, that's very true for... Um, for art in particular for painting for cinema for photography but not necessarily so much with writing for whatever reason like when we read a book we can be like oh I can pretend that Ernest Hemingway didn't write this but it's like also like Sally Rooney has come out and said like no I'm a communist and like that has colored people that has colored people's perception of the books normal people in conversation with friends and you have to recognize that there are like creators are biased people as well yeah. And we, we just don't know enough about Artemisia to really know the full story and how much she changed in her lifetime. Think about the things that you wrote when you were a teenager. Oh, so bad. But they were so, like, mine were so, like, sexually, romantically charged. Yeah, yeah. Like, mine were much more obsessed with romance. But, like, we talked about this also, that, like, my my desire to listen to, to music has, like, what kind of music I'm listening to has changed as I've shifted from wanting to be amused to wanting to be a creator Mm. or like I don't know but like at the same time too then in my in my lit 101 class um we we studied quote-unquote studied the the shortest story of all time as as uh, my lit my lit professor called it I still remember it because it's just one sentence when he woke up the dinosaur was still there what does it mean there's a whole story within that. It can mean so many things. It can mean so many things. I hope it haunts you as it does me. Well, to wrap that up, um, that podcast with History Extra uh, came out in April. I do recommend a listen. Catherine Fletcher is much more knowledgeable than I am, um, but has less opinions. Um, my mom would probably prefer that. Uh, so if you like more fact, less opinion, <laughs> go listen to that. Um, but it had come out because originally there was going to be um, an Artemisia exhibition at the National Gallery in London. And uh, Joy of Joys, it's been pushed back from April now. So it's showing the 3rd of October 
2020 to the 24th of January 2021. So you know what we're doing for my birthday next year, Kristen. We're gonna gonna go see uh, Judith and Holofernes in real life. I I'm like I'm super pumped. Yay! Mostly, I'm just super pumped to see you in person again because I should have seen you like three times by now. Yeah, it's been dark. But we're both healthy and we are alive and bringing you great content. We will be right back. sweet iced coffee back from a break back from a break we scrolled through instagram dan snow's thirst trapping oh he is he literally posted a picture of him in a waterfall in a wetsuit and just wrote philosophy as the caption like like brackets like brackets like he's making he's trying to be like satirical like i don't have anything philosophical to say because you're all just here for my hot body you're married sir stop trying to trap us he knows Maybe they get off on it. Maybe they're like, hmm, all those people think you're hot. All those, like, 20-year-old, 30. Sorry. Okay. Bless you. When I got, when I got, when I was helping a pregnant Labrador retriever on the sidewalk yesterday, it was the best night of my life, there was a, when, when we were waiting for the guardie to come, uh, this woman also hopped, stopped to help me, and she was on the phone, and she's like, no, I just got here, but a young girl has been sitting with the lab for a while. And I was like, a young, moi? A young girl? Do you know the worst part of like having to wear masks? Because everyone should be wearing masks. And I like, if you don't, I don't like you. I'm sorry. I'm just going to put it out there. I don't care. I don't care. Don't listen. It's fine. People, since I've been starting wearing masks, I keep thinking like, I'm going to have to take it off because I'm going to be carded. No one keep, no one's carding me. So my eyes look like the eyes of an over 25 year old. I've never been carded here, but some woman thought I was a young girl, so I'm going to take it. Also, uh, all my colleagues in archaeology, they all thought I was in my early 20s. And then I was like, no, I'm 30. And they're like, shut up. You've got good bone structure. That's why. Yeah, but oh my God, these wrinkles on my forehead, Kristen. I'm going to tell you about someone who never really had the chance to get old, which is like a really sad segue. I'm sorry. That's a sad segue into someone who otherwise is just like really fucking badass and I'm obsessed. All right. Uh, you tell me I'm going to mute so I can eat my cheese. Yeah. I'm going to tell you about Julie Dovigny, better known as Mademoiselle Maupin, La Maupin. She was a 17th century opera singer, sword fighter extraordinaire, and shockingly for the period, an openly bisexual woman. During her life, she was at the center of much gossip and its many events are so thrilling that few believe them to be true. So just a quick thing about sources, who I should be getting credit to. Um, it's a bit complicated. Like you have to separate the woman from the myth and you can't really do it. Mademoiselle Maupin or La Maupin was her stage name. And this is how she was best known by her contemporary public. However, her acquaintances addressed her as Emilie, Emily, in their letters. And a close friend named Thévenard called her Julia or Julie. And for some reason, Julie has stuck when they talk about the historical woman now. She was a noblewoman, but not from a prestigious family. 
Now, the main sources, um, there are some contemporary sources, including correspondence. Like I mentioned, her correspondence with TV Nord. However, much of what we know of her life comes from later accounts. And who's, who's, who's Tevin Yar? I'll get to, to his story, but he was another famous opera man. Um, okay. And that she was very good friends with and possibly a lover. I just, I just didn't know if I'd miss something over my cheese chewing. It's not really important to know who he is at this point in the story. Just to know that like that's the correspondence that survives is really like his letters to her. And there hasn't been an authoritative biography written in English on Dobigny, but there's some really good narratives online. In particular, I'd like to point out Jim Burroughs, who I have uh, used pretty extensively, and Kelly Gardner, who wrote a novel about Judy called Goddess, who provided a lot of really good historical information that she found online uh, and through her research in a blog post. There's some extra stuff floating around in French, but like there's not a lot. So would you write that? Would you write the biography? I would like 100% write the biography of Julie Dabini. So setting the scene, Julie is born in the 17th century in 1673 in France. Her father was a man named Gaston Dabini and her mother is unknown, but she appears to have been their only child. Okay, I'm just thinking of um, Beauty and the Beast, so. Exactly. No one drinks like Gaston. No No one fights like Gaston. I don't know the rest of the freaking song. Her father, Gaston, was the secretary to King Louis XIV's master of horse. So just to like put it into context, Louis XIV is the guy who goes, ooh, Versailles, let's make that hunting lodge like super nice. And let's also ship a bunch of young girls who are orphaned off to Canada to populate New France. What's that novel called? We talked about that novel. What, the one we ha- I had to read in school? Jeanne mm-hmm. Fille mm-hmm. Yeah, so they Fille I, I had to read that in school. Ugh, haunting. Also, Louis XIV, friend of the pod. He is, yes. Yeah, we've talked about him. And we should talk about him more. He had a lot of lovers. Male, female. Didn't matter. He was Louis le Roi Soleil, the Sun King. But his master of horse, and this was like a very prestigious position, by the way, was a man named Louis de Lorraine, Comte d'Armanac. He is very important in Julie's story and is about to come up in a, in a couple more minutes. Okay. So I can't really tell you about her childhood. Sorry, very typical. But her father was a gifted swordsman and duelist and appears to have taught Julie how to wield a sword. She would fight alongside the court pages and excelled at fencing from a young age. Cool. She also took to dressing as a boy around this time. I need not tell you that you are free to wear whatever the fuck you want, but in the 1680s, a young girl would have been sexualized if she wore a pair of trousers, and this was therefore extremely risque. Because you could, like, see her bum? Exactly, and her ankles. It's the ankle. There's some discussion whether Julie's cross-dressing was intentional expression of her non-conforming identity or whether she just used it to pass off as a boy or whether it was just more comfortable to fight in. Certainly there are occasions where it have been beneficial for her to pass off as a man on occasions where she was found out, but she does she doesn't seem to be particularly worried about the discovery. So it suggests that maybe she was doing it because she preferred it. 
but we're not actually sure what that says about Judy's gender identity. Yeah, because like, I feel like most girls even today go through like a tomboy phase. Yeah, quote unquote tomboy phase, because we're like told that there are prescriptions to like what our gender is. And though we've like are now coming to understand it as more of like a fluid spectrum, you got to put yourself on. I don't want to define where Julie was on it because yeah. only she gets to do that. Yes. But it's it's just to say that perhaps she can also be and has and has been taken to be um, by some modern you know fans as a sort of non-conformist gender non-binary figure. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm going to get crucified for this, but a bit projectionist, almost like the way that we did with Artemisia. Where possibly some of it, yeah. Okay. Just just sort just just sorting it out in my own head. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's like we've said before, like, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to project, but you have to acknowledge you, you, you might be are. Exactly. So Julie's childhood, therefore, was very different. She certainly didn't conform to the norms of what a, a little girl in late 17th century France should have been. Um, she grew up around the riding school at the Tuileri Palace in Paris. So this is like just outside the modern day Louvre and is no longer there. There are some uh-huh. really nice gardens there now. Until around 1682, at which time she moved with her father and his boss to Versailles. Okay. So at this point, she's age 11 and she's living in the Grand Écurie, the Great Stables which was not very glamorous, by the way. Like, everyone has this idea that Versailles was, like, very opulent and beautiful to live in, but particularly during Louis XIV's lifetime, it was a construction zone and a hell zone. Yeah, fair enough. Nothing's changed. Yeah. Rumor has it from the age of 14, she entered into a relationship with her father's boss, the Comte d'Armanac. I'm not sure if you can call this relationship, considering he was 32 years her senior. How old was she? 14. Nope, that's not a relationship. He then has a hand in arranging her marriage to a man named Maupin of Saint-Germain-en-Laye. I were... lived there. Did you? Yeah. That's where I was the with Saint-Germain-en-Laye. Well, that is where her husband was from, the husband she like literally never saw because <laughs> she was married to him in order to cover up her affair with the Count. Uh, sorry, rape her rape by the count it was typical that like people had affairs at this time in france but it was not typical to be doing so with a noble woman that was unwed no we're 14 14 the marriage to mapay um was very brief in reality because he was soon shipped off to the provinces and though she kept his name for occasional use and stayed married to him because you know catholic church Julie did not follow her husband and remained in Paris. Contemporary descriptions of her at this time describe a woman with curly auburn hair, pale white skin, blue eyes, a nice face, and very athletic in build. She's also said to have an incredible memory and a good, strong singing voice. And this is really where Julie's story picks up. So she's gotten herself to Paris, where apparently... She is engaging very regularly in fencing duels that are sanctioned. So dueling at this time is illegal in France, but 
you could make a sort of a quick buck by putting on a show. Okay. She was apparently so good at fencing that she was challenged once by a spectator who thought she couldn't possibly be a woman because women couldn't fight like that. And in response, she lifted up her top and flashed the crowd. Good girl. It's not a sexual act to expose your sexual sexual gender. Do you know what I mean? By flashing the crowd, she wasn't like being salacious. She was being forward. But it was not an invitation at all, you know, and I think that that's important. Fencing as well for Julie was so central to her entire life. The French fight fencing style of Julie's period used a sort of thrusting style with small, light, short swords suited to fast, intricate handwork. You had to be quite like athletic and speedy. Yes. And one of the best known masters of sword fighting when Julie arrives in Paris, the man named Céran from Marseille, and he quickly became her lover. However, in 1687, Ceyran kills a man in a duel, and though fencing, again, was acceptable as entertainment and exercise, it was illegal, so when the man was killed, he had to go on the run, and Julie chose to go with him. Really? Yes. So she runs all the way to Marseille with him. But because she was such a good fighter, and because she was such a good entertainer, Ceyran and Julie found work on the stage as they made their way south. They sang as part of their performances, And she was eventually encouraged to find some formal training for her singing. And she met a man named Pierre Gautier. And she was given a stage job when they reached Marseille at an opera house. It's no small feat that she literally like left Paris on the run and then arrives in Marseille and is working at the opera house. How, how is, how is he not, how is Saran not arrested? I, I don't know if it was like some kind of Wild West thing where they have like sketches put up around France. Maybe, but it doesn't really matter because Julie's about to ditch him. Chill, go on. Her love affair with Seran just sort of dies, and Julie's love of fencing and singing certainly does not. Around 1690, she's known to have entered into her first publicly known affair with a woman. Cool. This is also an affair that will gain her the most notoriety. So the woman... Uh, we don't actually know her name. We just know that she was blonde and the daughter of a local merchant and that they fell in love. Her parents panicked and stuck her in a convent in Avignon, but Julie was not to be denied her love. So this is just great. Julie poses as a postulant nun, a nun in training, and enters the convent so they can continue their love affair. When an elderly nun dies, Julie steals the body, places it in her lover's bed, sets a fire to disguise the corpse, and the two flee the convent. That is like something out of a novel. I know. And this story just like passes around. Like this is the story that gets attached to Julie's life. But in reality, it seems that after three months or so, the affair ends for one reason or another. Okay. And the girl, the girl returns to her family. And as the story is circulating, a tribunal was formed to convict Julie of kidnapping, body snatching, and arson. I mean, and she, she was guilty. Yes, yeah, she was. So she was sentenced to death by burning, but she mm. was on the run. So. Okay, okay. I was like, well, I don't know if she deserved that, but. Oh, no, her story's not done. Now, not even 20 years old by the way. Julie Dabigny was a fugitive, making a life for herself, singing in inns. 
In Poitiers, she met Maréchal, a professional singer turned alcoholic who believed she was wasting her talent and promised to help her get back to Paris to make a career as an opera singer. He does seem to have taught her for a time, but then she left him to go north to Paris on her own. On the road back, she meets a man named Louis-Joseph d'Albert, the Duke of Lune, and they had a little duel. This is also another story that sort of becomes part of Julie's myth. Apparently, he made some comments about her or she spilled some wine on him, and therefore they, were, they challenged each other to a duel. And when she won, she revealed herself to be a woman. And he thought it was so funny that they became great friends. And when they discovered they were both nobles, they were like, oh, we can totally have sex then. And they start this affair that would go like on and off for a little bit, for a little while. Why not? You know. Now, there's another man who's going to enter Jeannie's life. And this is Thévenard, the man whose letters survive. Gabriel Vincent Thévenard uh, was in Rouen, where Julie met him as she was making her way back to Paris. He was a talented young singer. And they became friends slash lovers and set off together to Paris to fulfill their dreams. Now, please remember that Julie also is still wanted for arson, murder, etc. And is possibly going to be burnt if caught. But she's just like going around France, having the time of her life singing. Chill. Julie somehow will receive a pardon from King Louis XIV himself, who thought it was so funny and it was probably the Count, her father's old boss, her rapist, that helped her out. So she, when she finally gets to Paris, she's fully pardoned. She's ready to work. So her and Tevenal go to the opera house, and he gets hired immediately, but she does not. So undeterred, she persuades some men to give her another audition. Julie's voice was said to be extremely unusual for a woman at that period, but the master of the king's household, who heard her sing at her second audition, immediately recognized her talent, and she would go on to become a fixture of the Paris opera for the next 15 years. What, do, you, do we know what makes it so unusual? Yeah, we do know why Julie's voice was unusual. She apparently had quite a low voice. I wrote it down because I was like, Tenille, know what this is? A contralto. Yes. Apparently, she started out singing as a soprano because that was sort of the the parts uh, that were available at the time, but she was more of a natural contralto or otherwise has been described as a mezzo-soprano, somewhere in between those two. Yeah, yeah. I was a mezzo-soprano in my choir days. Yeah, I know nothing about singing, but comparable contralto singers are people like Cher, Anita Baker, and Marlene Dietrich. Podcast. Marlena. Marlena. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so they, they're the belters, right? They can belt. Yeah. So Julie will actually have parts written for her, specifically for her voice during her opera career, which is no small feat. No, that's pretty rad. Opera at this time, this is the Baroque period, had sort of taken over Europe by storm. It was a spectacular, expensive affair full of ornate stages, moving parts, sort of like visual arts, dance, music, drama. It's like an all-in-one show. Hell, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Between 16... 16- I'm sorry. <laughs> to me, like a second. I was- <laughs> Such a dad joke. 
Ah, uh, sure, Kristen. At the end of the day, it's night. Between. Sorry, I'm drinking my coffee. Now, when Julie is singing, she's going by the title Mademoiselle, which in English is Miss, rather than Madame, even though she was married and even though she will use Maupin, her married name. Okay. Mademoiselle is typical for opera singers to use, um, even though even if they were married. So it's more of like a a, a theater title. Exactly. I feel, I feel like when you get into like Victor, like Regency and Victorian times, non-married women would use misses because it gave them the air of respect respectability. So it's kind of like the, the opposite with opera singers in the 17th century. Exactly. I think it's also a recognition, possibly like a putting down of the position. Madame is a title of respect. Mademoiselle, one that you use until you gain it, which usually comes with marriage. Yeah. So it's like, even though you may be married, you are debased still, even though like they are held up in society as these great stars. because, Because it gives you permission to lust after them, right? Because that's the thing is like opera singers, opera dancers, like we've talked about this um if you work in the theater you're one step away from prostitution yep and la maupin certainly became this like big star Julie becomes really quickly around 1690 sort of a fixture in paris and someone that people certainly lusted over a famous french diarist once wrote that she had the most beautiful voice in the world after hearing her perform in 1701 but Julie was still Julie, and as an opera singer, she often played very powerful women, as well as goddesses. Her debut was as Pallas Athena and Cadmus and Hermione by Jean-Baptiste Lully, and Julie would go on to play Athena and her Roman counterpart Minerva, as well as Dido and Medea, so like these like very strong, very complex female characters. In 1693, she was applauded for her performance as magicien, magician, in Henri Desmarais Didon, and would go on to star in multiple productions until 1705 by several well-known opera writers of the period. But she is best known and celebrated today for her role in the 1701-1702 opera Tancred, where she played Clorens, a role specifically written for her voice by André Cambra. It's set in the period of the Crusades, because who doesn't remember those fondly? And it was meant to showcase her voice. The opera was the first in France to use a lower female voice, and it was an immediate success. It was performed in Paris for over 60 years, and Campra would go on to write two other operas for Julie as the lead, but they were nowhere as popular as Tancred. I mean, as a soprano myself, I feel that I have a right to say this, but sopranos can be annoying as fuck. So, like... I can imagine how cool it would be to have like an alto lead, you know, because it's intriguing. It's lower. It's, you know, it's this idea that like, it's like the phone sex voice, like women with a lower register voice are somehow more luring. Yeah. It's like when you have a scratchy throat and you're like, oh, I sound sexy. Yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, I'll be sick every day so I can sound like this. So she gained a reputation while she was working as an opera singer for defending chorus girls who were tr- being taken advantage of by lusty noblemen. And on one occasion, it's said to have chased after a man when he would not stop harassing the women of the company. Good. 
But Julie was often a troublemaker when it came to matters of the heart. She had an affair with the opera singer Marie Le Rochois and then persuaded another, Françoise Moreau, known as Fanchon, one of the most popular opera singers of the period. But she was denied by Fanchon and apparently Julie attempted suicide in response. Really? She was a woman who seems to have had great passions. She also seems to have moved away from relationships with men later in her life completely. Uh, When a tenor at the opera tried his luck with Julie and she rejected him, um, there's a really great story. uh, He he apparently writes sort of like a vulgar epitaph. Yeah. Epitaph. Epitaph. And she swore her vengeance. So she puts on some trousers, gets her sword, and waits for him in the public square where she challenges him to a duel. He refused, not recognizing her. So she attacks him with a cane, steals his watch and snuff box. And the next day he explains to everyone that it was like this group, like this group of guys just like came out of nowhere and just like attacked me. And like, you know, if it was just one person, I could defend myself. And Judy's like, you're a fucking liar. She goes, uh, you're a base coward and a liar. It was I alone who defeated you. You were afraid to fight. And so I gave you a sound thrashing. As proof, I return to you your miserable watch and snuff box. Oh, shit. Julie is uh, sometimes just iconic, I think. There are so many other stories, and I don't have enough time to talk about them, but she once threatened to shoot the Duchess of Luxembourg. On another occasion, she found herself in court for attacking her landlord and apparently humiliated the Countess of Marino sometime with some radishes while at a court ball when traveling around Spain. Cool. Don't do we know? Is the Countess of Marino a friend of the pod? I don't think yet. I think okay. she's on our list. Julie's also going to have a little bit of a uh, entanglement with the king again. So she's involved in a bit of a scandal at the court ball, which was hosted by the king's brother in 1697. He's also an iconic person. At the ball, where she was dressed as a man, Julie danced with young noble ladies and kissed a woman in front of many others. The girl's three suitors then raged, and Julie challenged them to a duel. She beat all three, of course, but dueling is illegal. So when Julie gets back to the ballroom, she's confronted by King Louis XIV, who calls her the Jade La Maupin. His brother had the whole thing laughed off. He said men could not duel, but Julie was not a man. Yeah, there you go. You write laws that say men can't duel, or, well, yeah, sorry, fuck you. Exactly. What is that? Though she gets out of that one, Julie's like, that's a little too close for comfort. So she fucks off from Paris and goes to Brussels, where in typical fashion, she has an affair with Maximilian Emmanuel, the ruler of Bavaria. Mm-hmm. Because why not? There are sort of two, two stories that go with this affair. One, that she was once on stage and stabbed herself with a real dagger and the, yeah, and that he thought she was just like a little bit too intense. So he paid her 40,000 francs to leave him alone. The other is that when it ended, Maximilian sent a man with 40,000 livres, so money, to pay off Julie, but she was so furious that she threw him out of the house and kept the money. Yeah. You yeah, keep she, the money. Exactly. She's pragmatic. I hope people are like, oh, I'm not going to take the money. It's like, take the fucking money. Take the money. Like everyone, Julie had a great love, and unfortunately, it was marred by tragedy. 
Marie-Thérèse Louise de Sénétor de Lestrange, Madame la Marquise de Florensac. You okay? Uh, okay? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we need some water after that one. God bless the French. We're just going to call her Marie. I know. And I was like, something about it. I was like. I feel like if, heaven forbid, I ever had children, like I would give them 10 names just for fun and throw in a couple like fake titles in there. Absolutely. Yeah. Marie. We're going we're gonna to call, we're just going to call her Marie. Yep, was cool. born around 1670. She's the daughter of the Marquise de Chateauneuf. Chateauneuf? Yeah, you should check that out. It's just a bridge. She was married in 1688 to Louis de Crusol, Marquis de Florensac. She was 18 at the time, and they had two children, including a daughter, Anne Charlotte, who was a very gifted scientist and linguist, as well as a renowned philosopher. Cool. Just like a just like random fact. Marie and Julie met in 1703 in Brussels, where Julie was working as an opera singer under the name Mademoiselle Maupin. Julie and Marie were of a similar age, uh, and they both fled France for Brussels. This was not Marie's first time doing so. Apparently, the Dauphin, who's like the, the heir to the French mm-hmm. throne, uh-huh. was quite viciously uh, and actively pursuing Marie at the time. And it was unwanted. Yeah, it was unwanted. So she literally had to leave the country. Take Marie, no for an answer. Men, if you're listening, take no for an answer. Absolutely. And Marie and Julie were just like, fuck it. We're just, we just really like each other. So they were like, we're going to live together. So from 1703 for two years until Marie dies of a fever in 1705, aged 35, the two women oh. lived together quite happily in Brussels. Oh, you know, Kristen, I used to think that 35 was so old and now... Just around the corner. Julie, at the time of Marie's death, was around 31, 32, and she was heartbroken. She said to have put her affairs in order, left her career in opera, and entered a nunnery. In 1707, aged only 33, Julie Dabigné is reported to have died. What? I know. Very brief, but passionate life. Yeah, like, I don't know, like, I... That I'm sorry, her death was very sudden to me just there. I was I know, but there's like no other way to say it. Like it's just this life, this hilarious, this sort of very like energetic person's just dead at 33. That's how it happens sometimes, isn't it? It does. And I think she's just one of those people as well that will go on to inspire so many others that I don't actually know if all of these stories are real about Julie, but I think what matters is that that's how people perceived her at the time and ever since and like she goes on to inspire so many fictional and semi-fictional portrayals that actually downplay her life like there's some understanding that julie's actual life may have been crazier and that stories are lost that's it's so interesting it's like it's like when you walk into a like a studio executive's um room and you're like i want this i want to have this story about this woman and you know, she burns a corpse and then, you know, she has several affairs and duels and she flashes an audience. They're like, yeah, that's not realistic. Yeah. It, Julie is very much one of those people that are like, there's no way. There is no way that this like bisexual opera singer who dressed like a man and fought with a sword so, like so well that King Louis the Fourteenth just forgave her. Existed. Yeah, and I can also I can also see how like it can also see how that movie would be like watered down or like make it into her being like super sexual instead of like the badassery that's involved. I mean, and I think it's one of those things too where it's like if men take on a large number of lovers, they're not defined by their sexuality. 
but because Julie's a woman and she's having a bunch of one night stands or she's having several affairs, then it becomes about the fact that she's so sexual. Yep, absolutely. I thought she, like, once I read about her life, I was like, she's perfect. She's exactly what we were trying to say with this podcast, right? Like these people who are remembered for their sexuality, for something in their past, for their breaking of the norm. Yeah, like, I'd remember her more for her her audacity. Like, fucking, like, stealing a nun's corpse and burning it, like... Oh, it's just iconic. Or, like, beating up a man in a town square and stealing his watch and snuff box so that when he, like, it's, like, a bunch of... It was a bunch of dudes. She's like, no, it wasn't. It was me. Yeah. She's, however, going to be really... Like, she's very influenced by a man named Théophile Gautier who bases his titular character, Madeleine de Maupin, upon Julie in an 1835 novel. He was actually asked to write a story about Julie and instead produced a novel inspired by her. The main character is androgynous. She passes off as a man on multiple occasions, and she's caught in a sort of a love triangle between a man and his mistress. But it does tone down considerably Julie's life and its interpretation. Though the book will be banned from publication in many countries because of its celebration and sensuality, as well as critique of gender roles. Is the book been translated into English? I only found a French version available online, but I do recommend reading bits of it if you are able. I think that it's really important to often look for historical representations of gender because we have this idea that it's like just the 20th century that begins to challenge it, but that's not true. I think Julie does show that. I think that Théophile Gautier in writing a character based on her shows that. And she's been gaining some popularity online because of that. There's like a whole load of Tumblr fan art produced in recent years. Yeah, I did. I did try to Google her and see what came up uh, while while you were talking. And it, yeah, there's a lot of fan art of like anime girls uh, with like very curvaceous female figures and in boy clothing fencing. I just I've seen like a lot of people attribute things like she's been called <laughs> read one article. She's called like a sociopath, a badass, a feminist icon. <sighs> I think, I think we started out this podcast, like talking about like feminist icons. And I just, now I kind of cringe at that phrase because I feel like we've built these women up. We've, we've, we've mythologized them. Not, not you and I specifically, but like, I think that's what we're like, you know, we started this podcast as like, oh, such a, such a feminist icon. And then the more we talk about them, the more we rehumanize them. Yep. Not that, not that you and I have the power to do that for everybody, but just like, it's, it's, it is taking their lives back and being like, well, maybe they didn't want to be a feminist icon. Maybe they just wanted to do what they were doing and not have to represent like all, all, all women. I, I think with Julie as well, like you can just see her as an icon for change for radical thinking, for a complex individual who's not always a good person. It's about humanizing her. It's like you said, it's about seeing the human. You know, she's someone who bent the norms in her very brief life. And I'd like to see her as someone who took on the challenge to be particularly unique in a period that resented any expression of like true deviance. Yeah. History often celebrates those who deviate from the norm while also condemning them. Yeah. And I think maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's wrong to consider 
Judy as well as a woman. Maybe if she lived today, she'd define herself in a different way. And I think that's maybe what makes her resonate today. I think that's maybe why we're going to hear more about her. I hope we're going to hear more about her because she has that ability to be a strong, heroic, historical figure for the modern person. She has ability to be read the way you kind of want to read her. And it's knowing that that's both, like with Artemisia, dangerous and empowering. I have nothing to add. You, you summed it up so perfectly. Thank you. My notes don't let me down. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, I'm a fucking genius. And then sometimes I read over our notes and I'm like, what the hell am I going to say? I know. And I, I'm like, keep this in because it's like, sometimes I, I, I hear myself talking and I'm like, oh my God, I sound like such a, a literary critic, you know, who's just like jacking off to myself talking. And it's like, I think it's but worth this, highlighting that we, we process things. Like sometimes we say things and we're like, nah, nah, nah. That's not, that's not nah, what nah. I mean. <laughs> delete that, delete that. Exactly. And I think that there's some balance of like us leaving stuff in and leaving in our discussions because we are working through, like you said, like we started off being like feminist icons, so badass. And I'm like, absolutely feminist icons are badass, but. Give us some new ones. Give us, give us, give us the person behind the icon. Because you can still think of someone like you can, I'm happy if people want to take Artemisia and Julie and see them as these like incredibly powerful women who can speak to their experiences, who can see their lives reflected in their works of art, in their stories. But you can also learn like the facts about what we know about them. You can also challenge the way you perceive them. It's like the idea of like, you should challenge your faith. Yeah, you, you can't you can't just accept things blindly. You have to you have to work through them. You have to they have to stand up to the test, right? History can only convey so much. Exactly. Exactly. And I think and I think that's the problem. That's that's something we always have to remember is that like within the great man theory of history that like Napoleon and Hitler and Winston Churchill drove history you know like why did they make these decisions and it's like it could be for a simple reason as you know uh they were in a bad mood Mm -hmm. I think I think as well like we get to pick particular you know like when I was trying to choose a song for Judy I thought well what event in her life like what do I want to play up do I want to make this like really empowering hilarious funny controversial controversial person and the thing that kind of stuck with me um was actually her relationship with Marie because it's the one that changes her life like after her death Judy is still very young and she chooses to go to a convent which is going against a lot of what you'd expect Mm -hmm. so you go first what is your what is your song choice I chose like a hurricane by Francesca Blanchard she's great the song begins with someone saying Maria, which of course is like Marie, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, one particular refrain sort of stuck. Uh, Maria, I was so naive, careless dancing in the breeze. You didn't make it easy. Now I'm an island on my knees and your kiss a brutal memory. Oh, I know. But it just, it struck me as something that maybe, it, like it's kind of, it's like you said, like her death is just such, like, such an abrupt ending. And I think that that's the sentiment that I tried to carry in, into my song choice. Now, what have you chosen to represent Artemisia? Okay, so um, I really struggled because her life isn't defined by a love story. So I didn't choose a love song. 
and I didn't want to choose a revenge song because I don't believe that her life was defined by revenge either. So I've chosen kind of something in between, kind of quirky, and that would be Andrew Bird, uh, Effigy. Oh, oh, that's a good choice. Yeah. So the lyrics are, if you come to find me affable and build a replica for me, would the idea to you be laughable of a pale facsimile? So when you come to burn an effigy, it should keep the flies away. When you learn to burn this effigy, it should be for the hours that slip away, slip away. It could be you, it could be me, working the door, drinking for free, carrying on with your conspiracies, filling the room with a sense of unease, fake conversations on a non-existent telephone, like the words of a man who spent a little too much time alone, when one has spent too much time alone. Don't know if it's exact, but it gets the feeling, I guess. And sometimes music, like art, makes us feel a particular way, and that can resonate and connect to something else. Yeah, it's this idea that, like, you learn to get past something, and I think that's what it is with, you know, this, when you learn to burn an effigy, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, you have to take what you get, and you have to move past it, even if it's not exactly what you wanted. Because that's what an effigy is, right? A sculpture or model of a person. Now, remember, you can listen to both of these songs on our official Spotify playlist for the podcast. So thank you so much for listening to episode 12. If this is your first time listening, make sure you go back and listen to a few of our other episodes. We do do minis as well, if this was too long for your delicate sensibilities. You can reach us on our website, Instagram at Coquette Podcast, or on Twitter at Coquette Podcast. All the links are in the bio. We're also up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, all your listening platforms. Make sure to subscribe if you like hearing us ramble, and please give us a rating on your listening platforms if you can. That's where it can really help. And thank you so much for listening. My life revolved about him. Lord knows I'm just no good without him. My castles have crumbled, but I am his body.